You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Golikowski. Actually, I'm never really here with him. And many times Yitzhak, of course, is careening through the woods, trying to avoid cows. Today, Yitzhak, where are you? You're somewhere in, uh, as Harry Chapin would say, on the hill eating into Scranton, Pennsylvania. You remember third you remember thirty thousand pounds of bananas? Yeah, I'm on the way. Yeah, I got some bananas. I got some, uh, <laughs> some Yes. Bananas. Oh Lord, make it a dream. Remember that? That was Harry Chapin about the truck driver who So I hope you're doing okay. You got yeah. you some bananas. Not thirty thousand pounds of squash bananas, but you're on your way. And uh as your audio might kick out soon as you somehow go behind one of the Poconos hills or mountains. Uh, let's start talking about a one of your favorite films, uh, something that uh, is very dear to you. It's in the it's been in the public domain for a very long time. And uh, anybody who wants who has prime video, of course, can watch it perhaps. Uh, maybe with you know less to watch on YouTube. Watch yeah, it. We... I, I I first saw it on VHS. <laughs> you know, back right? And, and yeah, and we're talking about um, who killed Doc Robin. Um, it's uh, it's was meant to be the second series of 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 Curly and his gang. Um, Larry Olson, uh, I guess a. Uh, would you say a, a prepubescent uh, young man, or he was in? He was yeah. already a teenager. No, he was, he was probably nine or ten years old. Nine or ten. He and his group of friends, uh, who look and act very similar to a group of kids from about twenty years earlier, the original R Gang. Uh, in fact, they're really based on the R Gang characters, uh, and they were basically brought together. Uh, by uh, the creator of the R Gang son, uh, Hal Roach Jr. I figured, you know, his dad had a great hit with the R Gang group. Uh, and they, of course, by the time this film came out, uh, Who Killed Doc Robin, which is from 1948, they had all grown up, basically, and, and were off to, uh, you know, 
various uh, hills and dales and wars and other things. So everybody still had a great nostalgia for the original R Gang. So I guess Hal Roach Jr. felt, hey, maybe we can um, once again reinvent this uh, this series. And again, it was before television took off. And the idea was they would make a number of these films. And of course, this film is only 55 minutes. Um, the, the the film that preceded that, which of course is is Curly, was 50s. Not meant to look uh to be like the the R gang shorts, which lasted, I guess each one was about 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, these movies, this this was meant to be like almost as we said, a, a full-length uh television program, like, like these these 55 to one hour films. And I guess Hal Roche Jr. thought he was maybe going to have a series, uh, similar to what we talked about last week, uh Dog. Dagwood and Blondie. Now you picked for your the one that means more to you is not the the first one. You know, I don't think I saw the first one. To be honest, you never seen the first one. No, but I'll I guess <laughs> you know the first one has a little has quite a, a you know a um, a terrible pedigree in that uh, when it came out in 1947, uh, my the, again I was not born yet, but the town that I am from, Memphis. I refused to show this film uh, because uh, the group of kids were shown in school together and they were all, and they were, of course, it was a, a uh, there was, of course, black children in the classroom as well. And this was considered something Southern audiences. The two black children, this and that. So it shows how things that are seen as maybe too progressive for some audiences can still be stereotypical and, and unfortunate. You know, it wasn't necessarily the best portrayal was maybe even, you know, less politically correct than the original R gang, which, you know, has had its share of controversies and, and urban legends. You know, the famous, you know, and very false urban legend was that Bill Cosby bought up the rights to all the, the R gang, the little rascals, as they were known on TV, because, he, you know, he didn't want anyone to see you know these types of racist shows, and that just that just wasn't true at all. And uh, yeah, well, yeah. well, you know, I I think if we start talking about our gang, we'll probably you know we'll probably reach that mountain in the Poconos, and you're going to probably be short circuited. Um, this was suffice to say, it was trying to build on some of the spirit and sweetness, and I guess a little bit of the puckinish puckishness of our gang sort of the you know a little bit of chutzpah that they yeah, had I'll, I'll be honest i i enjoyed this more than our gang i felt that the children you know in this gang they called them curl in his gang i think is, is how it was sometimes presented because i think there were television prints of who killed doc robin that were curly and his gang in the haunted house who who killed Doc Robin? Yeah. Bernard Carr is the director. We don't know much about him, but we do know one of your favorite actors, George Zuko, uh, is the Doc himself, right? Who I guess there's a, a there's a lab explosion, and the question is, you know, is it the beautiful girl? The I guess who's is is, is she their teacher or something? I don't know why they actually uh, why they get involved with this, but uh, Virginia Gray originally. Right. Um, is, you know, the uh, sort of the cheesecake here, <laughs> the Mrs. Crabtree. She was uh, she was a, a radio actress. She was in a lot of radio shows at, at around that time. 
she was in another, I believe, was also Cinecolor film, a rather strange film called Unknown Island, which is more strange just because, you know, there weren't that many dinosaur movies in the 40s, especially post-war 40s. And this was a color film. Might have to talk about that another time. Uh, that featured, you know, going to an island with dinosaurs that, you know, the same. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, Virginia, Virginia Gray had been in movies since she was a little girl. She'd been in silent films as well. Um, but, you know, she she was the sort of the Mrs. Crabtree that the kids all sort of feel like they need to protect. Um, and it's got, you know, I guess the um, it's got everything a little bit in it in the 55 or 56 minutes. Uh, you got a lab that blows up. Uh, you've got a trial, and um, I think you told me that you felt that the that the courtroom scene with the kids uh, disrupting and coming in to testify um, was uh, was a hoot for you. Yeah, it, it inspired me as as a child. I remember one summer we made a a a, a summer, you know, there, there's a little youth center in the little rural town where I grew up. And we made a little play, and I called it Who Killed Doc Robin. I, I changed the story quite a bit, but most of the story was surrounding the the trial. And, and part of the trial, though, was taken from, you know, ripped off, really, from Disorder in the Cougars short, which itself was a lot of vaudeville act that had been, you know, I, I, saw, uh-huh. I saw Buster Keaton do the same. The same acts that that Curly did in Disorder in the Court. So I kind of I see. So you felt you had license to base yourself on these two classics, and of course it was it was done there under the auspices of 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 executive produced by Deborah Winger herself, right? That's right. Yeah, she was our drama teacher for that. I I wrote, I wrote the play and I mostly directed it. So let's talk about this show. I know that the Yitzchak uh, Kolakowski's life story is as yet to be made. I don't know who's going to be playing you. I'm not sure. It's going to be a very, it might be one of the most expressionist, you know, t- films. We might need Terrence Malick to come in and, you know, make it like a, you know, a six hour epic. <laughs> so tell me, let's just, let's just say, I mean, again, there's, here's a show you know, you're going to find it easily on on free television, on YouTube, on on on, on uh, Prime. If you're a member, are you going to laugh? Are you going to enjoy it? Is it going to bring back? You're saying you weren't a, a, a Little Rascals fan. Little Rascals, of course, the R Gang had a couple of different iterations. Little Rascals itself has has been tried to be brought brought back. I didn't see any of those really, you know, um, maudlin and and very weak. Uh, attempts of trying to capture again what was great about that time period of the America of America with the Little Rascals. Y- you feel that the youth here do a great job. The kids are believable as actors in your mind. They 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 sound like the lines are coming from their neshama, so to speak, as opposed to reading from cards. I think maybe it might be the other way around. The original Our Gang were just regular kids, and they weren't acting. And here, the Mila was that they, these kids knew how to act. I think uh-huh. that was, they knew how to, to memorize lines. It wasn't just, it almost felt like when you watch the, the original R Gang, it almost felt a lot of the time there wasn't any script. It almost seemed like it just kind of felt together. Yeah, a little, it, it sort of has that. Was never good. I, I, think just, especially, I think especially the very early ones, the ones with, um, not the ones with Spanky. 
but actually with Jackie Cooper in it. And, um, you know, from the earlier period, I think that those were, you know, those had a little bit of a, they had a sort of almost a uh, ad-libbed, you know, yeah. <laughs> cinema verite sense. But again, look, again, we're, we're talking about this this one. Even someone who hasn't seen the All Gang, even some the characters, I think, are much, much better developed characters. They, they are, even though they're tropes, you know, there's the brainy kid and there's the, and there's a little girl who, who has a speech impediment, and there's the black kids, and, and which are, you know are presented in a, a really horrifically racist way, actually. Um, and then you know, just Curly is their leader, and, and it's, I think it, it it comes out a lot more solid. I, I'll tell you, the original Our Gang, a lot of those shorts they seem a lot longer than they than they are. When you tell me that they're twelve minutes each, they usually feel like they're about twenty minutes each. I don't know. I just Except the silent ones, I always, I did enjoy the silent ones, but that those are not as well known. But the talkies, the ones that were generally shown on television, just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. This movie, it hits the right notes. It's not a great film. It's not a brilliant you know work of art, but it hits all those right notes. Okay, so tell me, Yitzhak, your children are different than maybe some other kids. They have um, distinct sense of what they like and what they don't like they are they have been raised by connoisseurs you and your wife would the uh, from our listening audience you think they could watch this with their kids and enjoy it you could watch it with your kids i don't know if my kids would enjoy it but you know it's certainly something that you know it's a movie made for kids more, more or less and it, mm-hmm. you know it, and it has all those aspects i think it's got a gorilla in it too right there's some gorilla in this as well right yeah there's there's a there's a man in a gorilla suit there's the haunted house there's all this stuff and and George Zuko is uh, is is always an interesting character. I, I, his personal life, I don't know how much you want to talk about, but his uh, how how much is he in this film? Surprisingly, more than you would think for a character who's apparently killed off. Oh, don't oh, we're giving stuff away now. <laughs> I see. Okay, yeah. spoilers ahead. <laughs> okay, so who killed Doc Robin? You know, and especially if you want to turn the. Um, the controls on YouTube to see it on 1.5. It'll only take around. I want to offer what was considered one of uh, Frank Tashlin's greatest achievements, which is um, most success spoil rock hunter. Uh, it was based on a, a play, but it really wasn't. Uh, Frank Tashlin just took the name and some of the characters and basically decided to pretty much skewer totally and completely the uh, television industry and the basically where where the movie industry was going i think the film has been preserved for being aesthetically important or something uh you know i'm not sure um it was it was a fox film and from the beginning of this film uh which was made in 1957 it is i think the airplane of its day I don't know if you've ever seen Airplane, you know, the Zucker Brothers or The Naked Gun. Or- Shirley. Yes, yes. Don't call me Shirley. But anyway, it, it, it's in a way the Airplane, although it doesn't have the rapid fire throw everything in the kitchen sink, almost every other line is some sort of dig or stuck, double entendre. It's basically, it's got, I think it's, you know, one of Tony Randall's best 
performances. You know, he was some somewhat of a young fellow in 1957. He made it. He is, you know, it was was entrusted to carry this film. The film is about a advertising man who comes from Harvard, and this is, of course, the only job he can find. And what he's what he is trying to do is what he's been doing. Although he's been Harvard educated, he's been writing jingles for television commercials. And by the way, the credits don't begin with some music, uh, but they actually uh, over the credits, over the actual writing, what you hear, what you see is examples of of probably actual ridiculous television commercials or satirical takes on what television commercials were. And it's very, and I, and it's, they're very similar to what Carol Burnett, uh, of course, did for years on her variety show, which was, you know, to talk about the commercials of the, you know, of the, of the past year. And of course, send them up. Uh, Tashlin was doing this. Tashlin had a, a career, I believe, in um, cartoons. And then he went in to make feature films. Uh, Artists and Models, of course, is a, a famous film that he made that that has uh, Martin and Lewis. I think it was, I think, perhaps the last film uh, that they made together. And I think um, you can see some of the tension in there. But uh, some people think it's the best Lewis and Martin film because it's really, it's really uh, partakes of a, of a, of a wild aspect. It's sort of wild and crazy. Uh, it also was a, a satire on the comic book industry. That was what artists and models were. So was the cesspoil rock hunter really takes a uh, a, <laughs> a knife, a machine gun, a machete onto everything? Television for sure. Uh, television is, uh, in fact, there's uh, what happens is is that they need to create a series of television commercials for stay put lipstick, and somehow. Uh, Tony Randall's character, Rockwell Hunter, has a teenage niece that's living with him. It's never explained exactly why. And she is part of the great fan club for the Marilyn Monroe character that is played by a Marilyn Monroe type character, Jane Mansfield. Jane Mansfield, of course, a little quite a bit taller and more statuesque than Marilyn Monroe, plays a character called Rita Marlowe. And, you know, Rita Marlowe sounds like Marilyn Monroe. And, you know, she even um, uh, the movies that supposedly, you know, Rita Marlowe had been where was a combination of Jane Mansfield's own flops and some of Marilyn's films. Uh, Joan Blondell is in this film as well. Joan Blondell, in fact, sort of makes fun of, you know, uh, of, of, of sex symbols and bombshells. She had been a, a, a tremendous actress, uh, a tremendous comedian and actress. Uh, in, in her time, we've talked about her. I talked about her role in Nightmare Alley, which was just, which it was about, I guess, eight years before this. But in this film, you know, she sort of plays uh, a woman over the hill who's the attendant of this starlet. And the starlet is a bubblehead and who's in a way crafting everything for her, uh, for the fans. Uh, to create a, a phony narrative about what's really going on in her life. Uh, but also supposedly connected to the real love of her life, uh, which is to make jealous this Tarzan the Ape Man uh, fellow. You know, again, some sort of Johnny Weisbauer type of fellow that they give they give a a, a ridiculous name to. Uh, and she's really um, George Schmidlap is really the the love of her life that she can't ever get out of her mind. But somehow Tony Randall playing Rockwell Hunter ends up uh, meeting her. 
And because he knows where she's staying, because his daughter is somehow privy to this secret information of where she's at. And because she's trying to make her boyfriend, this Tarzan fellow, whoever it is, this Tarzan type of ape fellow, ape man movie guy, jealous, and he happens to come through the door, she chooses him to be the bow that she's running around with to make her uh, her boyfriend jealous. The boyfriend, of course, mouths off to all the gossip people in Hollywood, and all of a sudden it turns out that Rockwell Hunter, who has been basically a nobody, just somebody, some ad guy out of New York, is now splashed on all the movie pages as the love interest known as the lover doll to the sexiest woman alive, uh, the number one starlet. And this, of course, changes his life. All of a sudden, he becomes a, uh, a a huge success. Everybody, of course, and this is really what the film is about, is how fleeting success is, how ridiculous celebrity is, and, and how somebody who really did nothing uh, becomes front-page news everywhere all over the world. And, of course, every single country is made fun of in all these sort of ridiculous type of newspapers. Um, there's a lot of jokes that have double entendres, as I said before. I can't really say it's for yeshiva light. Uh, and it's time. There is enough. But it, it comes at you fast and furious. Um, in terms of the um, supporting cast, the love interest, Betsy Drake, is in there who plays his long-suffering secretary, who, uh, instead of being, you know, she is jealous and drops a flower pot on his head, but then she's committed to, like all women in America, to turn themselves into the vavavoom figure of of Rita Marlowe. And of course, at all the women's stores, there's all these artificial ways for these women to <laughs> to sort of assume the the hourglass shape uh that was so uh beloved at the time and that's part of what tashlin is making fun of of america's males obsession um is the unbridled libido ruling everything in, besides the uh the commercials in the middle of the movie tony randall breaks the fourth wall as Tony Randall and says, since most of you sitting there all have televisions, so I, I don't want you to feel bad coming to a movie theater, not having the, the homey feeling of a television. So just like in television, you never see the whole program through. This is a break. And then the screen starts fluttering and you see snow and some of the other problems that all black and white televisions at the time had in terms of you know the the the, the picture being fuzzy and going out of out of focus and again really taking the 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 hammer uh to what television could do i i was the weird kid who would just look at the the static snow and, and <laughs> enjoy that um, yeah yeah by the way the the tarzan fellow is bobo Bobo Branigansky, and they never changed his name, Bobo Branigansky, the jungle man. There's also, um, I just want to point out, an amazing turn by John Williams. It's not John Williams, the composer. It's John Williams, the British actor, who always played the Scotland Yard detective in Dial M for Murder and many other films. Somehow, he is the head of the new of this New York ad firm, and he's known as Mr. LaSalle Jr., Again, how do you have this Englishman, you know, as stuffed shirt as they come, uh, being playing this role? But I, I think John Williams couldn't resist it because 
you know, again, I'm going to spoil things here a little bit because it turns out, of course, that as you know, he doesn't really believe that he's worth it. And that really, um, what he'd like to do is grow the perfect rose. He'd like to, you know, he has enough money anyway from his, from his dad. He'd like to just go into horticulture and grow the perfect rose, which he ends up doing after it turns out that through all the success that uh, Rock, Rockwell receives, not only does he get the key to one of the executive washrooms and become a vice president, and of course, that is considered like the ultimate status, being able to use the bathroom the way you want to. But also, eventually, he becomes the head of the company. Right? <laughs> the importance of this account rockets him to the top of the company. And John Williams reveals when he says to him, call me by my first name. His name is Irving. <laughs> Can you imagine John Williams known as Irving? <laughs> it's like, right. Henry Jones who you might know played a lot of these parts of these pencil pushers and people part of the Madison Avenue or basic industrial complex. Henry Jones was a, a character actor that was, you know, I think he was probably in, you know, he was, he was in 250, according to this, you know, you know, 215 different films. Um, but anyway, Henry Jones plays his best friend, also a Harvard guy who's dealing with his daughter, seeing a psychiatrist who ends up, like incredibly with Joan Blondell, somehow Joan Blondell, who is uh, Rita Marlowe's secretary, Jane Mansfield's secretary, somehow they end up in mesh together. And, you know, there's a lot of crazy little dancing. Um, there's a, a number of musical numbers that are just thrown in there for nowhere. And um, there is a cameo by um, by a brother of of someone we mentioned last week uh, who shows up in a very important cameo. So I don't want to say anything more than that. Um, I, I really feel that the, this film is incredibly how well it's aged. You would think a film that was supposed to be humorous in 1957, now after we've been through assassinations and after we've been through the Vietnam War and Watergate and and and, and the, 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 the horrible aspects of the of the of the civil rights struggle uh and and everything else that has occurred post that you would think that this is probably a, a just a dated piece of you know only a, a a film geek would appreciate it i really don't think so i think that i think the statements that it makes about celebrity culture are still correct the thing that it says about our obsession and fascination with 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 women just because of the way they look is still 100% true again it's television of course is become very prestigious but it's still it's still it's still fun to knock around television because we know how important whether we uh, whether it's like the old days or not the advertising that is still a very important part of television, the commercials, uh, they aren't anymore for cigarettes. They're more for uh, products, you know, various drug products and other things like that. But still, you know, I, I, television, I think, can recognize itself in this satire. Again, even though it goes on like for an hour and a half, you do not feel like, oh, this this film is just dragging you. <laughs> it does not feel that way at all. Jane Mansfield, of course, she was only 34 years old when she died. And, you know, her life was clearly quite tragic. And people, of course, talked about the um, Meryl Monroe's own tragic death. But this film, I think, exploits her in the best possible way. She's in on the joke. 
and she's having a fun time. Uh, much of the other things Jane Mansfield did, and you can catch her on on YouTube when you check out some of old What's My Lines and other things like that. Um, and you can see that, you know, she was only, you know, she never really was able to ascend the way she had been. You know, she was only, again, 34 years old, and she was killed uh, in a car crash on June 29th, 1967. She was only 24 when she made it. Right. She was born in 1933. She was only 24 years old. And you really see, uh, you really see she, she's quite polished, you know, in this. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the relationship of Marilyn had with her. I, I assumed that, uh, you know, Marilyn was probably okay with it. <laughs> you know, uh, I think Marilyn herself probably tired of all the attention she was getting and the fan clubs that arose to her for right. And there's a number of allusions to her trying to be a serious actress the same way, um, you know, Marilyn, of course, made her attempts. So again, Tashlin said about this film, I was able to do everything I wanted. And in that sense, I'm, 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 I share in his joy when we've talked about so many Hollywood uh, auteurs, so many people who had a vision who weren't able to bring it to film either because uh, they were shackled by the studio heads or the wrong leading man, the wrong way to wait, just, you know, the difficulties. Many have spoken about this. So I think this is just great to celebrate as a type of film that the director and writer, it's exactly what he wanted to put on, on the screen. And it's surprisingly, like I said, it, it has aged very, very well. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, there's some Easter eggs if you watch it a second time, but it's worth, it's worth a shot. So that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 